0: Tomorrow marks the latest step in the years long planning process for the 13,000 home Jericho Lands development. With city staff seeking council approval for the next phases of planning and technical studies. When I say Thirteen thousand homes—that's exactly what I said. That's twenty-four thousand people. That's a small town. At the end of the day, uh, And uh, there's a lot of conversation in and around that development. Some critics have opposed uh, the development itself, saying there's, the density is too high. That more testing uh, needs to be done. More reports uh, need to be written in regards to groundwater monitoring, other issues. Others have said it's the density itself—forty-nine story high buildings on all of them of course, but some, and that's greater than some have argued than the city of Hong Kong. Lots of rhetoric, lots of conversation around this issue. And of course, this project is being developed by, um, is a joint uh, venture with MST partnership with the Canada Loans Company, MST, standing for Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil First Nations. Joining me now to talk about uh, the Jericho lands is Hal Salem. He's a Squamish Nation Council Chair. Hal Salem, as always, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, First and foremost, uh, going into this conversation tomorrow at City Hall, what are you expecting?
1: Uh, I'm expecting a very detailed sort of overview and analysis that will come from the joint teams that were um, shepherding this project. You know, it was a unique process where the City of Vancouver and the MSC Nations collaborated uh, in this development sort of process. Mostly in the history of Vancouver, you know, usually the city is leading on big area plans and developers sort of follow into that after and are consulted. But this was a very unique approach at a government-to-government level, so there'll be a lot of information shared. Um, and I think that'll be a very monumental day for Vancouver to be able to move forward on one of the very few types of developments happening in the world where Indigenous uh, communities are at the forefront of the shaping the future of their own city. So I think it's going to be an exciting day.
0: Um, what do you say to the critics that say, look, uh, there's just too much density here? They've referred to, as I said, these 49-story high towers, not all of them, as uh, as I've said, but, you know, these, uh, these towers are going to give you some great views, which means international buyers, potentially, uh, uh, that can afford something like that, not something that would fit the budget of local buyers. What do you say to that argument, first and foremost, that it's just, too big critics have gone off as i said have called it uh, you know kind of like compared it to hong kong some have called it uh, metrotown by the sea what do you say to those people
1: yeah i think the criticism i would classify into two categories i think there's a lot of good faith criticism and concern that's been expressed by people that i think is totally valid and needs to be addressed and then i think there's also been a lot of bad faith criticism from i think motivated actors um who might live in the area and have a vested interest in maintaining a low dense neighborhood Um, the the biggest i think thing to, to to explain is you know the level of density that we're talking about here is bringing uh homes to our city that is desperately needed and when it comes to not just the homes themselves it's also the type of home so What's really important for everybody to understand is that th- these are lands that the nations reacquired in 2015, mm-hmm. and we've, we've come up with a development plan that sees them being sold as strata leasehold, not uh, just sold off to the market. So these will be retained. Every unit will be retained by the nations. And after 99 years, those condos would come back to the nations and we could potentially redevelop those lands again, renovate them and sell them again, but they actually get retained by the nation. So a good example is UBC, uh, where there's a number of leasehold properties. So when it comes to this sort of boogeyman around, um, around uh, you know, foreign buyers, These are going to be long-term leasehold units. Um, We generally don't see foreign buyers wanting to buy because if they are, they're more interested in sort of um, making capital gains off these properties as an investment. So these will be homes for uh, people that need to live and want to live in Vancouver.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you say uh, to some who say, look, the project itself – has almost, doubled, uh, has almost doubled in regards to the proposed density since 2021. Was there a, a, a conscious effort to say, wait a minute here, we've got this land, let's rethink this and really focus on density? And yes, it may be controversial, but this is what we want to go with initially and with our conversation with the city? Yeah, that's a good, a good question.
1: The narrative or the story is basically um, as the City of Vancouver and the region started to look at transit investments and really advocating for uh, the ubc extension uh, th- it became a question for the nations so these 90 acres in west point gray are one of the most un- undeveloped areas in vancouver but also one of the most undeveloped areas in in west point gray so when the conversation around ubc extension came up there was a conscious effort at the leadership of the nations to say wait a second here's a golden opportunity to bring um, transit infrastructure through our site and if we can um, if that works feasibly to bring transit um, SkyTrain to our site then it makes sense to maximize the investment that senior levels of government are making into that kind of transportation infrastructure um, by bringing a lot of housing near those uh, stations and so the density level changed as a direct result of the nation's leading an advocacy effort to have a SkyTrain station included within the development and of course you know we see lots of areas of metro Vancouver where some municipalities have done a lot of density around transit, which makes a lot of sense. You know, it reduces your car dependence, uh, reduces greenhouse gas emissions, and also bring, uh, builds a more livable community. So the density question really came from us leading the conversation around transportation um, into the site.
0: I don't want to get too technical here, but one of the key things I keep hearing about is this hydrogeological study. Uh, needing to be done to assess the I guess the subsurface formation and especially groundwater conditions. Um, and I guess at its core is this sort of underlying uh, uh, need to know whether or not that area, Went uh, through its infrastructure and community amenities, traffic, flow, all those types of things, that it can actually absorb that many people. Uh, do you think in this presentation, in this conversation, the underlying issues that the critics have really focused upon is these hydrogeological study and just a core need that infrastructure, that you can actually uh, uh, handle this type of density?
1: Yeah, no, I think um, it, it is a very interesting question. I think that will be addressed tomorrow in the staff presentation, but I think what's important for the public to understand is that when there are these sort of large scale area plan planning projects, um, this is, it's a policy statement. So it's the first step to many steps of development. Um, The the projects still have to be phased. There's phasing that's involved in each of the parcels. Mm -hmm. And then within each phasing, there's also a rezoning application for each um, area within that phase. And then eventually you get to a development, uh, development permit application and then eventually construction. So, Generally, um, the past practice and the normal practice is that there would be a policy statement that sets out the broad goals and objectives, and as we go through that, there will be more technical studies that are now um, done to be able to address the feasibility of certain aspects of that that's That's very standard and common for for cities and for the city of Vancouver. So this sort of recall or demand that everything be paused in order for the study to be done is, I think, a bit of a red herring when that's not normally what's needed. And there is a way to be able to adjust the development as we go through each of the phasing. You know, if, if the study comes back and says, actually, it would be better to reduce some of the density on this side for this or that reason, So we can make those changes, and then the density could be moved into other parts of the development.
0: Now, Salem, I'm curious. uh, This is a massive project. Uh, Yourself, um, part of the MST partnership, I mean, is is it overwhelming at times just in regards to taking something like this on. You require a lot of capacity to build. You need the right people to be part of this uh, conversation and to sort of work its way through the whole planning process and actually start building. I mean, give me a sense of just trying to build capacity in, in, in not only your community, but uh, Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh as well to be taking part in all of this.
1: No, it's, it, it is a huge undertaking. And, and this project in particular is you know the largest of all of the projects that you know our nations are working on. It's the largest Indigenous-led, you know, real estate project in the country, if not the world. And there's so many uh, moving pieces and so many different professionals that are involved on different stages. And, you know, we see a huge need to expand and grow our capacity. And, you know, we're taking steps to do that and we need to do more. We need to create more partnerships with institutions, you know, educational institutions, with the private sector to figure out that that sort of workforce strategy. How do we get people from, you know, coming out of university into the pathway to taking on senior positions at one point and i think that's all the nations really are committed and want to see our people you know excelling and um, taking on those roles and it, it's a it's a gargantuan challenge i think it's a challenge that we're seeing across the board in a number of areas of how do we as a society ensure that we are um, creating the types of careers and uh, workforce to be able to serve our society and we're seeing challenges of this in teachers and healthcare etc Uh, And and it it happens for us at a a much smaller level, too. Uh,
0: This is going to take a while in regards to the planning process. It's a a massive project. It will take a lot of years. When do you envision having shovels in the ground?
1: Good question. So in the general timeline of development in Vancouver, you kind of get through a policy statement like this. It might take uh, about a year to get through uh, the rezoning application for one of the parcels, and then it might take another year and a half year to year and a half for a development permit. And then from that point, you're getting into contracting and then eventually shovels in the ground. So that's still a two to three, three and a half year process before the first building could even be constructed. And of course, it takes a couple of years just to build infrastructure for that development as well, before you see even cranes in the the sky kind of thing. So it's a long, long process, especially when we've been at it since uh, 2015. So, and how long do you think this will take for you to fully build out that neighborhood?
0: Any sense of just uh, the, the timeline there? This is this a a 20 year process, 25 years, or less?
1: There's sort of a range. Um, I think our goal is around 25 years to build out all the mm-hmm. units, um, although that could end up being closer to 30, or it could be a little bit less. It depends on a number of circumstances. One of them is just market conditions. Um, Does it make sense to sort of, you know, bring in a certain amount of units at a certain time? Um, There's also delays that can happen in construction because of supply chain issues or other economic issues. So Mm -hmm. I think we're looking at around a 25-year period. I think if we could um, make that um, quicker, we would like to because obviously Vancouver has a huge housing need. And the revenue generated off this project is going to support directly into community to support you know, healthcare centers and elders community centers, affordable housing, um, you know, new parks and recreation facilities for the three nations. Mm-hmm. So the sooner we can build it, the better. Uh, and do
0: you think you have the right mix in regards to uh, rental housing, lower income housing? I think 30% of it is rental housing. 20% is uh, allocated for lower income social housing. And I think 10% is uh, purpose-built rental housing, uh, which I think is being allocated for below market to, or mo- moderate incomes. Uh, do you think this is something you can actually deliver upon?
1: Yeah. So, what's really exciting about it is that generally, the City of Vancouver requires about a twenty percent um, affordable housing requirement when in developments. So that's their general policy. What we were able to achieve on this site, largely because of the First Nations involvement and because of the level of density, is that we we found that we could actually push the level of inclusionary zoning a little bit higher and closer to thirty or thirty-three percent. And, and that doesn't normally happen. So that's an additional value that the nations have um, um, added into uh, the development. And so I think that's a really exciting aspect. That means a lot of you know, social housing that will be managed by nonprofits, um, delivering affordable housing for Indigenous families, and, and in particularly Musqueam, and Squamish and so families potentially, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of rental uh, is needed. And, and of course, there is the market component and the market condos, and there's been some criticisms around that, that you know, why, why aren't we doing 50 or 60 or 70% rental? Well, there's a lot of costs involved. You know, there's a the land cost um, that we negotiated to purchase the land. Um, there 's all the development costs, and there 's all the carrying costs if we 're trying to pay off those things, and also just the urgent needs you know we, we need to build um, a lot of community amenities within our community and and a, a condo type development um, sees the return on investment sooner than say a rental project, and we 're doing rental projects in other places that are going to generate that long term passive revenue so it 's a broad strategy
0: so in your mind, the criticism that, that only twenty percent is being allocated for lower lower income social housing and only a quarter of the remaining 10% is purpose built rental housing that you think you know that's the right mix in regards to all the other infrastructure and everything else you're trying to build out essentially you're building a new neighborhood that the criticism in your mind is unfair to say you should have uh you should be pr- providing you know sort of a broader range of rental housing for vancouver right that you're not doing enough with this massive project you don't buy that argument
1: well i think um what i'm often challenged by is the, not just the criticisms themselves, but also the critiques in, in broader context. And I think that this project has faced a certain kind of campaign, uh, a mobilized campaign and funded campaign that is unusual for the type of development that happens in Vancouver. I think we've seen a much more forceful opposition from an organized group on this project that's Indigenous-led mm-hmm. than we've seen on other projects that are non-Indigenous-led. You know, there's lots of of large area plans that happen where where market development happens and the same level of accusations around, well, why isn't there more affordable housing? Well, we don't hear the same people or the same criticism on all these other projects that are happening throughout the city. It's only on our project. So there's something about this unique project that I think brings out certain criticism. Um, And I think there's also just an element of because it's Indigenous-led, there sort of seems to be this double standard
0: and why do you think that is is it just you think it's just racism is it is it uh the size of this project and the impact it have I, I just want to flesh that out a little bit what yeah. do, why do you think the criticism is what you think it is
1: so there's there's some really interesting things about the site, right so west point gray has been a declining neighborhood for for a couple of decades in terms of of population uh, in certain parts of it, and we see that through the school um, attend, uh, school um, number of students at some of the elementary schools and high schools in the area. The the street that lines the Jericho property. So there's a, a, a few dozen uh, single detached homes, um, very large lots, very large houses that line uh, the southern border of our property. And the combined value of those uh, properties uh, in in 2021 was was uh, almost 300 million. Um, in terms of property value. I mean, it's an average of like $4 million per home. And these are the people that are saying that we're not building enough affordable homes in our development when we're going to be marketing condos that might come in, you know, between 600 to 900,000 and social housing units for Indigenous people and rental housing for um, renters. So, you know, there's, there's I think, um, a lot of, of, of feelings around the neighbourhood changing in a particular way. But of course. You know, we've focused development in certain areas in the city, and this is the first time that we're actually bringing, you know, the beauty of the West Side to a broader spectrum of incomes and households and community members. You know, it's not going to be an exclusive neighborhood the way it's been for the last 50 years, and we're going to see a greater diversity of incomes, families, um, you know, backgrounds, everything else, in an in an Indigenous way, which I think is really exciting.
0: Now, Salem, we've run out of time. Always enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Yeah, thank you.